I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello and welcome to the week seven edition of Flight Deck. An inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Savini, Jets reporter for ESPN. Thanks for joining us again this week. It is a special show on tap. We're going to take a break from the gloom and doom of this 0-6 season, which includes another brutal loss, this one to Miami. Going to take a break from that and devote our second and third quarters to a much happier time in Jets history. This week is the 20th anniversary of of the Midnight Miracle, the iconic comeback over the Dolphins in 2000. Who could ever forget that night at the Meadowlands? And uh, in the second quarter, our guest is going to be Wayne Corbett, the legendary receiver for the Jets, a Ring of Honor member, and played such a huge role in that game. And then, back-to-back interviews in the third quarter, we have none other than Jumbo Elliott, the 320-pound lineman who made that improbable TD catch, That is part of NFL lore. So please stay tuned for that. It's a lot of fun. For now, we're going to take care of some business and deal with the Jets. Of course, another absolutely, really a no-show performance against Miami. Uh, The top storyline with the team, though, right now is, look, the fans are sick of what's going on. You guys are already looking forward to next year, and I don't blame you. And right now, the Jets are the only winless team, so they have the front-runner position for the number one pick. According to our analytics people, the Jets have a 57% chance of getting the first pick in the 21 draft. And, of course, the big prize is Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback from Clemson, who is, let's face it, he's going to be part of the narrative for the rest of the Jets' season. You know, and part of me feels bad for Sam Darnold because it it seems like only yesterday – that we were welcoming him to New York as the uh, so-called savior. I like Sam. I still think he has untapped potential. and uh, But we have to deal with reality here. And, and the reality is this. If the Jets get the number one pick, Joe Douglas is going to take Trevor Lawrence. I mean, it's not like he doesn't like Sam. In fact, as we talked about in a recent show, he actually had Sam as his number one rated quarterback in the 2018 draft ahead of players like Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield, and Lamar Jackson. So we know he likes Sam, but Trevor Lawrence is on a different level, different level prospect. You talk to scouts and I've talked to them. They say he's the guy who comes along at once every 10 years, the complete package of physical, mental makeup. Uh, He's being compared to the likes of Andrew Luck, Peyton Manning, John Elway. In 35 games at Clemson, his, his TD interception ratio is just like something from a Madden video game. It's 81 touchdowns, 13 interceptions. This year, he's completing 73% of his passes with 15 touchdowns and one interception. Uh, it's just more than numbers, though. I mean, it's just the, the size, the arm strength, the poise. 
He's got everything. And Sam Darnold is, you know, he's been an inconsistent quarterback throughout his career. You know, you see the arm talent. You love his ability to improvise outside the pocket, but he hasn't put it all together yet. He really hasn't had a stretch where you could say three or four really good games in a row. Do I think he'd be better with better coaching and a better supporting cast? No question. I think he still has the ability to be a longtime starter in this league, but the Jets can't pass on the golden ticket. I mean, you know, it's just, and it comes down to money. I always tell people, follow the money, especially in a situation like this. Let's look at it. Sam Darnold is going to make $4.6 million next year guaranteed. His fifth-year option for 2022 is going to be about $25 million. Now, at this point, there's no way the Jets are going to pick up that option. But let's say he plays well the second half of the year, and they do. Uh, then you're talking about $29.6 million over two years. And then he's a free agent. Now, <clears throat> with Trevor Lawrence, it's a different story. You draft him, you're, you're restarting the clock on your quarterback contract. Just as an example, Joe Burrow, the number one pick in this year's draft for Cincinnati, four-year contract for $36 million. You know, that's a slotted figure, and I think it'll be about the same next year because I don't think the cap is going to go up. It may, it may actually go down a little bit. So you get Trevor Lawrence for $36 million over four years, and then possibly Sam Darnold for close to $30 million over two. It's simple economics. You have four years of fixed cost with Lawrence, only two years for Darnold, and that's on the kind of the leap of faith and an assumption that they would pick up that 50-year option. Right now, they wouldn't. So that's the facts. I mean, those are the numbers. That's the money figure. And Joe Douglas is not going to be able to, uh, you know, uh, ignore that. It's a huge dynamic in that decision. What the Jets have to do now is get Sam Darnold healthy. I think there's a chance he could play this week against Buffalo. Get him healthy. Let him play the second half of the year. Maybe you boost, boost his trade value. If he plays well and the Jets win some games and they don't get the number one pick, well, then you feel better about Darnold, and then you have to make a decision on Darnold versus, say, Justin Fields of Ohio State or Darnold versus Trey Lance of North Dakota State. That becomes a much more complicated decision for Joe Douglas because Fields and Lance, while they're considered top five kind of prospects, they're not on the level of a Trevor Lawrence. So that's – look – I, I hate to be doing this, but that's going to be the narrative over the second half of the season. As we've seen, the Jets are already in fire sale mode after cutting Le'Veon Bell. And then after the game on Sunday, they trade Steve McClendon to Tampa, a move that no one likes from an emotional standpoint because everybody likes Steve McClendon, but a move that just makes sense from a football standpoint. The Jets have to get younger and let guys like Foley Fadakasi get more playing time. So who's next? Well, I mean, Frank Gore would certainly be a guy you would say they could move on from, but we know Adam Gase just loves the guy, and really he's the only running back they could rely on, so I'm not so sure they would move on from him, even though they need to start playing LaMichael Pirine. You know, Quincy Wilson was just a bad trade for the Jets. I could see him going at any time. Henry Anderson, I would say he's on thin ice. He hasn't done much for the last year and a half, but he is owed $4 million guaranteed unless the Jets want to eat that money, a la Le'Veon Bell. They'd probably keep Anderson, but there's nothing he's done on the field that is keeping him around. And then later in the year, I mean, maybe you move on from Joe Flacco. I mean, if they, I mean, realistically, 
If Darnold's healthy, maybe they should just uh, promote James Morgan, the rookie, to the backup role, let him get more practice reps and see what you have. Flacco, we've seen what he is. We know what he is. What's the point, really? Once we get later in the season, you might as well let the young kids play a chance. It's the worst case scenario for the Jets. I mean, they've only played five games or six games. They're 0 6, and they're in fire sale mode. Okay, we're going to take a break from the bleak season that is ongoing right now and look back at one of the great games in New York Jets history, the 20 year anniversary of the Midnight Miracle, October 25th, 2000, Jets 40. Dolphins 37 in overtime, a game that ended at 115, and we are so privileged to have one of the stars of that game with us. Thank you so much, Wayne Corbett, for being here. Thanks for having me, Rich. Yeah, can, man, can you believe it? it's been 20 years since that game? Uh, yeah, sometimes it feels like it's been you know more, longer than that, but sometimes it feels like yesterday. Just you know the, the amount of content they show on the uh, TV and the radio, listening and seeing the game again, it's like uh, just one of those special nights. That truly is, I mean, other than Super Bowl three, which was long before our time, but that might, the Midnight Miracle might be one of the greatest ever. Was that, was that the most memorable game you've ever played in? Yeah, you know, other than some of the, you know, playoff games. But, uh, yeah, with the NFL Network and everything like that, they played all the time, and all the time people post on my social media links, you know, the, the plays from that night. So, it, you know, kind of fresh in my memory. I haven't seen it in the last couple of weeks. Man, and so, you know, People forget the Jets. That was a really big game for the Jets. They went in, you guys went into that game. You were 5-1 and one against an arch rival in the Miami Dolphins. And you guys were playing really good football. And, and all of a sudden, you know, it was like nothing in the first half. You guys were down 23-7 to seven at halftime. Like, what's going through your mind? You know what? It, it, felt, it felt worse than 23-7. I know I scored at the end of the half, which at that point didn't – didn't think it meant much, but, you know, we went from not being able to do anything right to not being able to do anything wrong. So uh, once we started coming back, I don't know. I think we all had the same opinion that, you know, we're so much better than what we're doing. And, you know, that it's not too late. We still had a half to go, but, uh, you know, we still came out slow in the second half. But as everybody saw, you know, quickly the momentum changed in our in our way. Yeah, and this was a Monday night game, so the entire country is watching this, and, yeah. you know, which was – Probably not a great thing in the first half. So you go into halftime, you're down 23 to 7. I'm wondering what, what's the mood in there at halftime? What are people doing? What are people saying? Um, you know, it's the kind of thing where we had great veteran leadership. So, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, those are the guys that kind of get everybody into the, you know, into the corner or this part of the locker room just to, you know, kind of like give each other a gut check. Like, listen, this isn't us. We're better than this. And uh, just to say, you know, everybody's watching. We're the only game in town, Monday Night Football. You know, we can't embarrass ourselves like this. And then we kind of we, – we turned it around. It took a little while, though, because in the third quarter was a little bit more of the same. So it's actually 30-7 yeah. to seven at the end of the third quarter. So you guys are down 23 points going into the fourth quarter. There probably isn't a soul in that stadium. People are leaving. You know, the parking lot's filling up with cars. Do you remember what Lavernia scored to get things going? What do you recall what the spark was to, to get things turned around? Probably that. I mean, yeah. and that was his first career touchdown. And yeah. if you you watch it, I mean, you know, Sam Madison, he was probably all pro corner at that time. You know, he just took it away from him, and that kind of like 
we got a, we got a little something. We got a little something going, and then you get the ball back, and then it's like, all right, we got some time, but not a lot of time. And then, uh, you know, just all of a sudden, everything started going our way. And then uh, Jermaine Wiggins scores, and I, I believe yeah. that was his first NFL touchdown. Yeah. And then you tie it with the touch, you know, like it was a great catch. What do you remember about that game-tying touchdown? You made it 30-30. Um, yeah. I, if you ever watched a play from the end zone where you're watching me, I was actually looking for him to throw it inside. And he threw it outside. It was like a post corner. He threw it to the corner, and I kind of like – tracked it and then uh just the last second was able to to lunge and get it but uh yeah at that point when we tied it up it was like this is this is great you know nothing can stop us now and obviously they scored right <laughs> after i scored but uh you know at that point we felt we had a good chance to win that was just such an unbelievable catch you made i mean you had so many great catches in your career does that where does that rank up there in terms of you know the the, the difficulty factor and the importance in the game yeah, definitely one of the most, you know, opportune catch, just how important was it at the time to tie it up. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he put he, he put it – all I ever tell Vinny and the guys is put it somewhere where I can get to it. You know, nobody else can. If, if I can't catch it, I won't let him intercept it. But just put it somewhere so they can't get to it. And, um, you know, Vinny had a lot of confidence in me and, and Laveronius, and uh, he just gave us a chance to make plays all night. So, Wayne, take me inside the huddle. When you guys are you guys are rolling now, you have the momentum going, the game's tied. Can you just – inside the huddle, do guys feel that vibe? Are you, are you – like, all of a sudden there's an energy? Yeah, yeah, it's fun. You know, you, you know when you're losing and you're in the, lot, in the huddle, it's just like you're listening. You know, but then when you're coming back and stuff and there's the energy in there, you kind of like – we're all facing each other. So you're looking at each other in the eyes and the smiles are there and the excitement's there. And it's completely different from the first half. And then you, you just, you know, you're thirsty to, to win the game. It's different once you get that little momentum going. So one of the great subplots that comes out of this game, and you know this very well, is that Arnold Schwarzenegger goes up in the, in the booth for the Monday night at the end of the third quarter. And yeah. they ask him about the game and, at this point, you guys are, are down 30 to 7 at the end of the third quarter. And, you know, Arnold, in his accent, I'm not even going to try to impersonate him. I'll, I'll embarrass myself. But, you know, he says, uh, you know, the Jets are going to come back and win this game, and Wayne Corbett will pull it off. And hey, Wayne Corbett will pull it off. I was like, close enough. I was like, I know, I know who you meant. But, uh, just yeah, he, mis you he mispronounced yeah. your name a little bit. But, uh, yeah. And then he goes, I think the Dolphins will have to be terminated. And people yeah. are thinking, this guy is absolutely crazy. When did you find out about the Arnold thing, what he said during the game? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've seen it a lot, but Quebec, he said. But uh, I'm just fascinated that he knew my name, which is, which is pretty cool. But uh, it's, just, it's just part of that night. You know, it's like a Hollywood script anyway, the fact, you know, how we came back like that. So, uh, you know, to have him say that, you know, kind of, kind of fits in, you know. And the funny thing is, I think he left the stadium right after that interview, so he wasn't even around for the great comeback in the fourth. Right, quarter. right. I think he was at well, some party in New York City or something. But okay, it's thirty. It's you know, it's the Miami goes up thirty-seven thirty, and though so then the jumbo play happens. Um, you know, everyone knows tackle eligible. Vinny tosses the ball in the end zone. You know, with a minute twenty to go, jumbo kind of makes this falling down catch, this three hundred pound tackle holds on to the ball. When that play comes in the huddle, 
and you hear the call there. It's a second second and goal from the three. What are, yeah. are you thinking? Like we're going to throw the ball to Jumbo? What, what's going through your mind? Um, I don't think I. I think it went okay in practice when we practiced it. I can't remember how it was all week, but uh, you know, he had those big hamburg ham hamburger uh, you know, lining gloves on. But it, you know, I always say it's like the best three catches anybody ever said. You had yeah. he caught it three times. I mean. And uh, just his face, his expression on the jumbotron was awesome. But uh, I don't know, you know, just as far as great calls at a time like this, you know, just like Curtis's halfback pass. Right. Why would you put the ball in the hands of a halfback in such an important, you know, part of a game? But uh, you know, he came through. You know, yeah. you you practice a play like that all year for that specific opportunity. Yeah. And and it just it works for us. I'm not saying Curtis could have ran it in, but it just made it made it that much sweeter, you know? Right. And, of course, Jet fans know you're referring to that tremendous play against Tampa Bay where, where Curtis threw in, in, in the rain through yeah. a wobbler, and you caught it in the back of the end zone for the game-winning touchdown. I truly one of the more memorable plays in yeah. history. And so Jumbo ties it, you know, 37-all, which – uh, which was price a priceless moment, and you're right. I think he did catch it about three or four times. They they had the instant replay review confirm the catch, and then the Jets go on to win it in overtime on a, a John Hall field goal at about one fifteen in the morning. Take me inside the locker room after the game. I mean, what you guys pull off like an absolute miracle? Um, no, it's exciting. We're spent. I mean, we I don't know how, how many plays we ran in the fourth quarter. I mean, we had like 21st down, something crazy like that. But it was not. We're elated. We're excited. Like you said, that was an important game. But uh, it was just that this, you know, last third of that game was just exciting. I mean, it was fun. It's why you started playing football as a kid. So now we were in cloud nine after the game. Vinny Testaverde, man, in that game, especially in the fourth quarter, he threw for 378 total and five touchdowns. Describe Vinny uh, in that game. Um, hey, he never wavered, you know, he just, he was always confident in there, just, you know, encouraging, like, listen, we'll get it. Don't worry about it. And then, uh, he just got, he just got on fire. And, uh, you know, I always say Vinny hadn't played in Tampa in the beginning of his career, he would be a hall of fame player. I mean, I think he had that kind of ability, that kind of leadership. So, uh, you know, I loved playing with him. And one of the guys who I don't think gets enough credit for what he did in that game, Richie Anderson was, yeah. he caught 12 passes in that game, which is, yeah. you know, talk, talk about Richie, man, what a player he was. Definitely underappreciated, but he had great hands for, for a running back. But I remember the fourth down play that he caught and just got absolutely killed on. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, he was a great, great player. Like I said, definitely underappreciated. You never hear his name. You know, when people are talking about Jets football, but definitely has a place as one of the, you know, the great, greater players that played uh, for the organization. And this, uh, this guy, Wayne Corbett, was pretty good in that game, too. You had six <laughs> catches for 104 and a couple of touchdowns. And uh, I'm just curious, now that it's been 20 years removed, when you're out in public, when you're doing a, a signing show or, or something like that, I mean, how often does this game get mentioned when you're mingling with Jet fans? You know what? I think – fans take it as a source of pride. Like, you know, while we talk to people like, oh, I never left the Monday Night Miracle. I stayed the whole night. It's, it's like a badge of honor that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't give up on the team. This is what, what kind of fan I am. So it's, it's kind of like a, 
it's a it's just funny how people feel that if they tell me they stayed the whole game it tells me what kind of fan they are so I hear it all the time yeah although a lot of fans did leave I think fans were leaving and then tried to come back come back in, at in that game that's that's the way legend has it uh, I mean I've been covering it the Jets for 31 years I mean that is probably the most amazing game that I've covered I mean it's yeah. just I mean it was very hectic to write that story on deadline because everything kept changing but uh, is there one like is there one snapshot moment that when you think back to that game 20 years later is there one moment that just kind of sticks with you um you know it, it kind of relates to what you're saying with people coming back in um, the lower bowl was completely full. Up top wasn't. It was as loud as I've heard it, um, you know, in, in a game for that amount of fans there. And when I caught the pass, you could see uh, – was it Dennis Miller? Was he the announcer? Yeah, yeah, he was the color guy. Yeah, he said, uh, Krebet is magic. And as I score, you see John Lally pumping his foot. And you see, like, the fans in the lower bowl going absolutely crazy. And when I see that, then I then I remember how great it was. Like in sync, we were with the fans. How like we were, you know, they, we were feeding off of them, and they were feeding off of us. It was just just seeing the fan reaction to my touchdown was uh was pretty special. That's what I remember about it. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, it was just a, a different time. As we know, the Jets are going through some struggles now, but that that game in two thousand was just uh, was just incredible. Yeah. Uh, did you? Uh, how, how many times do you get asked to like autograph it? Do people like hand you pictures of that game or, or, you know, like any, do you have any memorabilia from that game? First of all. Um, not sure. <laughs> that Hofstra I, helmet. I, have to, I have to have the touchdown, the touchdown balls. Oh, do you? I pretty much, I pretty much have all my touchdown balls, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, just, just one of those nights, man, you know, you don't need any kind of memento. It's just, you know, kind of, it's kind of sticks in your mind a little bit. Absolutely. Um, I, I just want to ask you about, I know you're, you know, you're a super jet fan now and you bleed green and just what's, what's it like for you just to see them struggling now and, and going through what, some of the things they're going through. It's tough. It's tough to watch. Um, you know, I felt, I felt that they did, they had a good draft. I liked their draft. I felt that they didn't do a lot in the off season, the free agency, but I felt the guys they got were great contributors, great the solid players, not flashy names, but good locker room guys too, good guys in that way. But uh, good leadership, but guys were injured, guys opted out, guys got traded. It's like the perfect storm. And I've had years where nothing bounced our way. We fumble, goes right in our hands. They fumble, goes out of bounds, or they recover. It's just every, nothing works out for you, you know, in a 1-15 in season I was in. And it's tough. It's tough at this point to know – you're just about midway through the season that you're pretty much going to be like, you know, out of the playoff contention, you know, halfway through the year. That's tough to, to come into work every day, but they're going to have to find a way to try to get some wins or, you know, it's just going to be one of the worst seasons they've had, but I'm hoping it, they could turn it around a little bit. You mentioned the 96 team. Of course, you guys go one and 15 and you started out. zero and eight. Um, what was it like to – so you know what these guys are going through now. You, you lived that in your second year in the league. Uh, what, what was that like going through 96 every, week after week, you know, just the losing? What are, what are your memories of that season? It's tough. It's really tough. Like you said, you, you know, you're 0-8 and, and you're like, wow, 
oh, I trained all year for this, and we're not even going to make the play. We have eight games to go, and pretty much mathematically we're almost eliminated. But at that point, you're concerned about your job, knowing if you don't have, the team doesn't have a good year, they're going to be looking to get rid of everybody. So you just can focus on that. You can focus on, you know, being there for your teammates and the fans. But uh, it's, it's tough, man. I, you know, I don't wish that upon anybody. I was talking to Neil O'Donnell one time, and he was reminiscing about – because that season, he, he, he tore his calf muscle as he was warming up in the end zone before one of the games – he slipped on the paint in the end zone, and he said you were standing by him, and you said, like, what's wrong, Neil? And he goes, I, I think I blew out my leg, you know, like my calf or my Achilles or something. And he said you reacted like, what? Are you you got to be kidding. Do you remember, like, warming up with him in the end zone? No, I don't remember. I'm sure that's something I would have said. But I, I know it happened. I don't know if I, I was there for it, maybe. But um, it's just how it is. If something could go wrong, it would go wrong. And that's how those first two of my seasons were there. We were three wins and one win. So, I mean, four wins in two years. That was a tough way to start. Well, the good news was two years later, you guys got to the playoffs and the AFC championship games. So, there were actually a lot of good players on that 96 team that became the core of of the 98 team. So, there was talent on that team. Yeah. Just, uh, didn't have the quite right combination of players and coaches that were kind of like aligned, but you know, at that going into the '98 season, you know, everything was different, and you know, the results showed from that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Wayne, I can't thank you enough for joining us. I mean, it's great to reminisce about something really positive. One of the great moments in Jet history, that midnight miracle. And I, one last thing about that game: Do you have you ever watched it in its entirety? Like since the uh, since it happened, or how recently have you watched it? <laughs> I've, I've seen it a bunch of times because, like I said, it's on the NFL Network. You know, people post it all the time. But to be honest with you, when I'm gonna watch it, I basically watch my touchdown at the end of the half, and, and I watch the, the the second half. I never actually watch the whole the, the first half because right. I have no interest in watching us play that bad. So I'll I'll, I'll start it off basically you know, in, in the second half of the comeback because it's, you know, miserable watching when you're, you're not doing well. But, uh, you know, second half is, is as good as Jets football as you'll see. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. Wayne, thank you so much. Uh, best to you and your family, and hopefully we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Rich. Take care. And welcome back. This is the third quarter of Flight Deck, and we have coming up our interview with Jumbo Elliott on the uh, Miracle Game for the Jets little background on Jumbo and I. We actually have known each other since we were kids. We grew up in the same town, went to the same high school, Satrum High School. I'm two years older. But we actually knew each other much younger than that. Uh, we were in the Boy Scouts together, the same Boy Scout troop, went camping, did stuff like that. Believe it or not, there was a time when I was actually taller than Jumbo. But that changed, I think, after his 10th grade year. Um, and I have the pictures to prove it. But uh, always enjoy catching up with one of my favorites. All right, you can't talk about the Midnight Miracle without one of the stars of the show who made the great touchdown catch, none other than Jumbo Elliott, a longtime friend of mine. Jumbo, thanks for popping in to talk about it. Richie, how you doing, brother? <laughs> All right. It's great. You know, we've been all this jet talk is really gloomy this year, so we have to brighten it up and talk about one of the great moments in jet history. You know, 
beating the Dolphins in that fashion was just unbelievable. Before we get into your spectacular touchdown catch, let's, <laughs> let's just talk about game and, and just the swing of emotions. I mean, you guys were as bad as could be in the first half, and all of a sudden just caught fire. What, <laughs> how did that happen? Well, you know, you know, it got to the point, Rich, actually it got to the point on the sidelines there where I, I was talking to the linemen and, and the offensive guys. And, uh, you know, I was trying to be the, like the, the elder kind of guy I was. And I was just like, guys, you, hang in there. You, you're on film. <laughs> I just kept reminding guys, you're on film. Yeah, for right. God's sakes, don't give it up. Because yeah. the, the whole league sees that film. It circulates around everywhere. And, uh, you know, the coaching staff, you're going to be graded. So I was, I was actually things were so bad. I was I was resorting down to that, like you know, you know, look out for yourself, fellas. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then uh, you know, the second half, man, oh man, it was like you know, Vinny started calling his own stuff. Uh, I, you know, you had you were talking to uh, my buddy Wayne Corbett. Wayne, Cr um, guys were balling. Guys just started playing out of their minds. You know, our, our defense, you know, came up with several turnovers. Um, you know, our field goal kicker was, came through in the clutch. Yep. Um, you know, so it, it was a whole different game. You know, Lavernius Coles and uh, Wayne Corbett, two of the toughest kids I played with, you know, real gutty kind of performers. And then, uh, you know, Vinny, Vinny was just, you know, he was outstanding. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder doing his own thing and um and then you know finally we got to that play rich you, you know oh my god when we when we called that play you know i was in the huddle there down towards the end zone there and um you know i got my fingers my, my thumbs you know at that point in my career tended to like slide out of joint and you know i had some fingers that have been broke over the years so i'm all taped up really heavy and they call that play in the huddle and we break the huddle i'm going to the line i'm like Holy shit! Like, this this play's coming to me. <laughs> what, the, what the heck? But we, you know, I didn't have really time to think. You know, I'm down in my stance. Vinny's going through the cadence, and I'm like, son of a gun! All right, think about your release. Like, look at me. I'm a 320 pound guy, and I was like, 
think about your release. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, fortunately, uh, I think Trace Armstrong was lined up across from me, and he he didn't have a clue what I was doing. Yeah. And uh, you know, so there I am, wide open. Uh, and Vinny tried to throw the softest. He tried to make it as easy as possible for me. And I tried my best to drop that thing. <laughs> About <laughs> three times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I could have been a leading receiver. I caught it so many times. But, the, <laughs> but ended up being one of those, uh, I like to call it very athletic play. <laughs> Did you, you must have practiced it during the week, right? I mean, you must have had at least one rep with that. Yeah, you know, during a year, we had a package there where there was like three – three different uh, 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 plays like that where I'd be out there and Vinny would just whiz it into me and practice like, you know, he wouldn't even hold back. You know, Vinny had a great arm strength. Mm. So, you know, it, it was always fun. And I always, in practice, it was like, you know, pretty automatic and, you know, not a, not a fun thing, not a big thing. Didn't think it was going to happen in, in a game. But our offensive coordinator and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I think my coach, Billy Muir, uh, my position coach ha had a little sway on what play was called at that point, you know, and they, uh, you know, they just pulled it out of nowhere because I guess they were saving it. <laughs> <laughs> they saved it for the right time. That was actually, there was a second down and goal from the three. So you come into the huddle thinking that what, you're going to be like an extra blocker in a running play yeah. or something like that. Right. So you yeah. don't actually find out about that play until you're in the huddle. Oh, exactly. You know, Oh my gosh. The, uh, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And, and like I said, you know, ooh, by that, uh, that was towards, towards the end of my career. So I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of spine issues and different issues going on. And so, you know, but that night, you know, Billy Muir comes up to me in the locker room. He says, Jumbo, I need you ready. Because he was worried about, you know, I, I had, you know, blocked Jason Taylor like a dozen times or so in the past. And he was worried that that night with our with, with Jason causing a little havoc. So he's like, "Look, I need you ready to go, big guy, just in case." So I taped up extra heavy, unlike practice. So I taped all those fingers and stuff that have been popping out over the years, extra heavy in case I had, you know, I needed to go in and take care of business. And next thing you know, you know that play's called, and I'm down in my stance. I'm thinking, "Oh my God, how do I get this? I can't get this tape off. How am I going to hold this thing?" <laughs> That's why you saw me bear hug it, right? Yeah. At the end, yeah. I was like, ah. <laughs> I just grab it like a hero. Yeah, but one of the great memorable moments was the look on your face that got onto the uh, jumbotron, <laughs> uh, you know, after that catch. I'm sure you, you probably have a picture of that or something, right? Oh, that was embarrassing. I had no idea. Yeah, look, I'm not used to that kind of stuff, so I, I didn't yeah. think about home. I, I, didn't, I wasn't trying to look cool, like, thinking I was going to be on TV. <laughs> 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 it's just like... Now, let me ask you this. You had a great career with the New York Giants, and you won a Super Bowl. You played one of the great Super Bowls ever. You played an awesome game against Bruce Smith. I mean, great career. But, you know, you make this touchdown catch for the Jets in, in a mem very memorable game. Like, when you go out in public and, you're, and you bump into fans in the New York area, like, which comes up more? Like, hey, you know, the Super Bowl win and the Giants, you know, or – you get here from about this, you know, the midnight miracle catch. Yeah, you know, I, I hear I hear a lot about the Super Bowl, obviously, because Super Bowl is a Super Bowl, right? Yeah. So you know that team, but Jets fans, you know, both fan bases are great. I was very fortunate to play for both New York teams, but the uh, 
you know, the Jets fans always remember the, the miracle in the Meadowlands. And the Giants fans always want to remind me, you're a giant, Jumbo. It's, yeah. <laughs> so I just play the middle. Yeah, <laughs> you, like, get, you get the best of both worlds there. Exactly. You know? Then I see, I try to see who's winning, and I, I lean that way any particular year now. Yeah. <laughs> Not too this much leaning. This, this year is a, a tough year to lean, right? <laughs> well, let's exactly. Talk about, all right, let's talk about this year. So it's getting a lot of comparisons to the 96 Jets because the 96 Jets were 1-15. You, oh, I don't really? want to bring on, up a, a bad memory, but you were on you were on that team in '96. Do you, do you see the parallels? I was in the Giants still. You, you sure? Yeah. <laughs> you came to the Jets. You came to the Jets for the big money, and yeah. I mean, what's it like to go through? I mean, what was '96 like for you? '96 uh, was something. Uh, so I come over to the Jets, and I mean, I was always used to a certain way of. Uh, of doing things, uh, the organization and the coaching staff and everything. So it, it was like, it was a big change for me. So I came from the Bill Parcells and his staff, you know, even when he left, his staff was mostly there. And then, you know, after him, Dan, you know, uh, um, we had uh, Coach Reeves come in and he's like an old school Tom Landry kind of guy. Uh, so I, I came over to the Jets and I was like, uh, um, it, it, it was a little strange. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, the whole building itself wasn't as organized as I was used to being around. Uh -huh. uh, so it was definitely different. Uh, I thought Coach Kotite was a great guy and some great people. There was some, some really good staff members, but as a whole, didn't have that binding organizational feel to it. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, so 96 was, was a different – that was an outlier. And then if you remember, Rich um, – it was, it was like, it was a very strange year for me because I, I ripped my hamstring going into camp. And so I missed camp and like, I missed the camp in the first three games, Rich. Yeah. So that, 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 that's like a season, like, a, you know, it's like, you know, it's very, you know, I'm a guy, I like to go through camp and I, I need, you know, I like my reps. Yeah. And so, yeah. so personally it was a very challenging year. And then, uh, um, you know, you know what happened with the team? It was, uh, you know, we, we, we didn't get a win until I think week nine, eight, yeah, nine or something. Yeah, you guys were 0-8, yeah. Oh, okay, we're, so we're 0-8, and, and I'm thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> I was like, is this really, what was I thinking? And then, uh, uh, but we had, we had Coach Earhart on offense, and we took pride in, um, I'm not sure where we ended up the year, but we had a top 10 offense, like, the whole year. And we, we had some real production. We had some really good talent. Uh, guys like, you know, um, we had Corbett and Jeff Graham, great hands. Uh, and then, you know, it, then out of the blue, we find out we're going to get Coach Parcells to yeah. change things around. Yeah. And then I remember all those guys on the 96 team, when those rumors started flying around the locker room, they're all asking me. What are we going to do? How, what's Coach Parcells going to do? <laughs> you know, and they got a gazillion questions. And what did you tell them? Well, I told them, I said, fellas, you know, <laughs> I said, a lot of you guys aren't going to be here anymore. <laughs> Things are going to change big time in this building. Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, I remember talking, remember Eric Howard? Yeah. Uh, the line. So Eric Howard had a, a big knee injury, so he missed 96, I think. And uh, he was thinking of uh, whether he should come back or not. 
And once he heard it was Parcells, he loves Parcells. But he's like, I can't do it. <laughs> That's what you I'm call retiring. culture change. Yeah. That was culture change. What was the craziest thing that happened in 96? I, I remember that Neil O'Donnell uh, blew out his calf in the pregame warm-ups that one game. Oh, yeah. What game was that, Richie? That, that was against that was... Houston, I think. It was raining at the Meadowlands, and he slipped on the uh, Jet logo in the end zone, and he blew out his calf muscle. That was very strange. It was yeah. really strange. I remember, and, um, you know, Neil was a good guy, but the, he had a little bit of a, a rough t uh, time with New York. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, it was very strange, and, and I remember – I was actually over in a facility at over at Hofstra, the old facility. I remember uh, seeing uh, Neil and our, our head trainer in the room. Uh, you know, they were looking at like MRIs. They, you know, they he had an appointment. I, I had an appointment for my back right after him. So the um, so you know they were they were showing me on the on the thing. It's like look, look at it. Look at this calf muscle. It's like. All right. So, so it, it was, so it was just, it was very strange. Um, you know, I, I just think that team had so much talent. It, it was just, uh, wasn't organized and focused enough. And, um, um, you know, it, it had me wondering, you know, starting to doubt, you know, when, when you lose like that, Richard, mm -hmm. Oh my God, you know, things yeah. start to, the wheels start to fall off Yeah. and yeah. you know, you get to a certain point and it feels like guys start to, you know, it's pro sports, so everybody's for themselves a little bit, but it becomes even more so. You lose any kind of team feeling. You right, know? Right. It's like, hooray for me and uh, screw you. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Jets are going through it now. You know, it's it's tough. You know, it's it's a, it's a tough situation. I don't I don't envy any player in that situation. No, it's it's really hard. It's you know what? Because the fan base is great, but it's it, it just makes everything hard. You know, going to the stadium. Is probably, you know, I, I hate to say this in the pandemic, Richard, but, the, you know, these guys probably have it a little easier with no fans. <laughs> yeah. That is absolutely true. Could you I imagine? Mean, we, if used the, hear, we used yeah, to hear it. Yeah, it would get ugly. It would get ugly yeah. in, a, in a stadium, you know. Well, maybe, you know, but look, Rich, there's a bright spot here. Look at it this way, you, you know. So, you, you know what we went through. In '96, and but look when Parcells comes in and organizes the team, the yeah. talent was there, right? So next thing you know, in, in two years, we're we're in a championship game out in yeah. Denver. So you know, sometimes things look bleak, but in today's NFL, you know, you can make a couple moves here and there. The way players move around nowadays, you get a little bit more solid coaching, and, and the whole thing can turn around. It really right. can if you get the right pieces. Well, that's, that leaves something for Jet fans maybe to look forward to. Um, but, again, Jumbo, I mean, I, I, I didn't really want to be a downer and talk about 96. I wanted to talk about the, the Midnight Miracle and one of the great – do you have any, like, a memo, a memento from that game? Do you still have the ball? That, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I got a lot of stuff that's in the attic. I have to, uh, I have to go through. But I have some game balls and stuff, and that's certainly one of them. And, um, yeah, so – I don't know, Rich. What should I do with that thing? I don't even look at these things anymore. It's like I got all this stuff from my career. I don't even. Look I think at you it. were underutilized at a, as a receiver. You should you should have complained <laughs> about not getting more targets. Well, you know, I mean, you talked to Wayne, right? Yeah. So yeah, w w you know, Wayne Wayne was a little bit worried. He's like, 
you know, he used to, he used to check with me. He's like, Jumbo, come on now. You're good at tackle. You don't have to come out here with us. I know. <laughs> you know what? He, he was worried about you stealing some of his, his targets. So Taking some of his reps. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that play is just – I think it really brings a smile to any Jet fan, and they could certainly use some smiles the way things are going now. So, uh, hey, I'm Jumbo, man, it's, it's, it's great catching up with you. It really is. Um, we got to do this more often and uh, enjoy. Hopefully you'll get a little – this week is the 20 year man 20 years i just can't believe it that that is just we're getting old man old. <laughs> i'm looking at your hairline rich i know mine's receding <laughs> i know right i get yep hey i've been covering the jets for 32 years it's lucky i still have hair <laughs> all right man it's been great talking to you jumbo and, and, all right hey rich i hope that i see you in person we, we get past all this pandemic stuff And uh, we catch up in person, man. Yeah, absolutely. And we're shaking it up a little bit this week. We're going to devote the fourth quarter to our Twitter mailbag. A lot of Jet fans chiming in this week after a brutal, brutal 24 to nothing loss to Miami. At James Lynch, 795. If Gase was brought in to improve the development of Sam Darnold and the Jets' fortunes, and has overseen a decline in both, how could the Jets keep him? Well, uh, a very fair question, and I think about 75% of the fans who chimed in on Twitter were asking the same question. So we'll answer it, James. Um, You know, millionaires don't like to admit mistakes. And Christopher Johnson came out very forcefully a few weeks ago in Adam Gase's defense, called him a brilliant offensive mind. And I don't think he wants to turn around a few weeks later and say, eh, never mind, I was wrong. <clears throat> so I think he's going to play play it out. And I think he genuinely likes Adam, and I think he wants to try to see it succeed. Do I think in the back of his mind he has serious, serious doubts? Of course he does. I mean, he's watching these games. He absolutely has doubts, and he probably knows how this is going to end. Um, the timing is weird. I, I could see something happening, but it hasn't. I think it's a fair question to wonder why it hasn't. But like I said, millionaires don't like to admit mistakes. Next, from at Brian DeBetta. How involved is Christopher Johnson with the team and Joe Douglas? Do you think it would be uh, they would be open to changing their organizational structure? Christopher is very involved. He's at the facility most days. He watches practice. He goes to every game. You see him on the sideline lining up with them for the national anthem. He has conversations every day with Adam Gase and Joe Douglas. He's apprised of roster moves. Uh, what they're thinking, even some game plan stuff on a daily basis, you know, so he knows exactly what's going on. He's not making personnel decisions a la Jerry Jones, but he's in on everything. And uh, would they change the structure? As we know right now, the structure is that the head coach and the GM are on the same level and they both report to ownership. I've said it many times in the past. I'm not a huge fan of that. Unless you have a really, really strong and experienced owner, I I don't like that structure. And so I do think they would have to be open to changing it because, look, everything has to be on the table. When you're this bad, you have to consider everything. Next, at uh, Dan Bow 76 when was the last time the Jets 
uh, did a complete teardown and started over, as it appears Joe Douglas is doing now. How quickly we forget. This happened in 2017. After that bad year in 2016, when the Jets realized that the team they had from 2015 just got old really fast, they tried to milk a year out of it, and it was a disaster in 16, so they tore it all down in 17. Remember, we had the whole uh, suck for Sam uh, mantra for the entire year. Things got so bad, Woody Johnson was was just telling his football people to just get rid of guys, and he told them to get rid of David Harris in March, and they actually procrastinated on it, thinking that he might forget about it, and then three months later in June, he's like, how come David Harris is still on the roster? Let's get rid of him. Let's get rid of his $7 million salary. And so that's why in the middle of a mini camp in June, the Jets abruptly released David Harris. And then Woody goes off to England to be the U.S. ambassador. And he left the mess basically in the hands of his younger brother, Christopher. So yes, the Jets have done this before. Next from at MacQ85. Are there any internal candidates to replace Gase? I don't think on a permanent basis, but in terms of the interim, everyone's been speculating about Greg Williams because he's done this before. He did it with Cleveland as the interim and actually did pretty well. But in light of the recent events, his comments about the offense, I don't think the Jets can make Greg Williams the interim. I just think it would send a mixed message. I think Frank Bush is a guy who would probably be the most uh, agreeable and he's the assistant uh, head coach slash defense linebackers coach a guy who's been around the league for a long time very well respected i could see frank bush becoming the interim and less lastly at terrence begley and j as in new jersey what other quote assets could be dealt to me uh maybe uh avery williamson and maybe brashad perryman as a one-year rental for a team looking for a deep threat yeah, the, the Steve McClendon trade, I don't even know if you'd call him an asset. I think they just found the ideal situation in Tampa. They had lost a, their starting nose tackle, and Todd Bowles is there. He knows Steve really well, so it was kind of a, a perfect fit situation. I do think Avery Williamson could be attractive to teams, and I think the Jets would be interested in moving him now that Blake Cashman is healthy. And they'd like for someone to pick up Avery's uh, salary. He's in the last year of his contract. Perryman is interesting. Obviously only on a one-year deal. But if you remove him from the offense, then you're hurting your quarterback. And soon that will be Sam Darnold again. And I think that may be a little counterproductive. They got to do everything they can to try to maximize Darnold's ability to perform over the second half of the season. Uh, you, they do have Denzel Mims coming back, I think, this week. He could be that deep threat, but he's not a proven deep threat. And I don't know if you want to do that to Sam, so I'd be surprised if they move on from Perryman. Well, we're moving on. Uh, thanks for checking in this week on Flight Deck. I had a blast with this show. Thanks to my guests, Wayne Krebet and Jumbo Elliott. Thanks to producer Jeff Scopin for putting this all together. Please rate and subscribe us. Check us out on Apple Google Play and Spotify, and of course, on all the ESPN platforms. Thanks for coming, and we'll see you next week on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.